Um, I checked today because it's a long time since I looked at him. I, I will put some notes on Chesterton up. I, I've got outlines of each of the chapters. And Do you all know what enthymemes are? Shame on you all. Actually, it's not shame on you. It's shame on your education. Shame on your teacher for not teaching. Yeah, yeah. Shame. It's just awful. Enthymemes are a way of forming an argument. Um, I'll put them online. It's a Aristotle listed, I think, something like 26 in the, in the rhetoric. I'm just so I'm so sorry kids aren't taught that today, particularly in college, but it's ways to structure arguments. If you've been reading Chesterton at all, you know that he he doesn't have five lines without making an argument, but it's casted with such humor that you don't feel as if somebody's pushing something at you. He's just a journalist describing things, but buried in it is a structured argument. So, it, it, to me, it's one of the most reasoned pieces of work that I have ever read in my life. I, did, I think it's a wonderful work. What I'd like to do, I, I checked it today, I haven't looked at it for ages, it's got nine chapters. What I'd like to do is take two chapters a week, or at least we'll try, let's see how that goes in the first or second week. If that seems too fast, we'll slow down. But I'd like to approach it thinking we can take a couple of chapters and flesh out his arguments and see what he has to say. Um, but say roughly a month or so on Chesterton. And then we'll take a break again and we'll do the Gospels. We talked about doing um, Matthew and John, one of the synoptics, John, and I think we talked about doing the book of Revelation. And that will be it. Sue, in answer to your question, I don't think we'll get back into a classroom. We might. The reason it came up for me several weeks ago is because Father Flynn wanted me back in a classroom at Seton. But we're looking there, we're looking to an indefinite future. I don't know where, how far we're going to go, you know, how many people will get involved. It's been a really good group so far and faithful. It's, it's really a year and a half, two years. Um, but um, I talked with Father Sojin and he didn't think classrooms would open up until late summer, fall anyway, and by that time we will be close to ending. So at this point I'm not, re if, if we have time to go back to a classroom, we will. Um, but if not, we'll, we'll... My question is, are we going to go through the summer? It sounds like it. Sounds like the answer to that is yes. But are we going to have any gathering with dinner and... Yeah. Oh yeah, or? yeah, there's no way we're not, yes, for sure. Yeah, and um, we, we can do it at the church or we can do it at our house, but for sure, there's no way we will not end without a dinner, none. And we'll try to plan it around everybody's schedule. I do not want to lose Tracy on this. So we have to find a night when, um, you know, she can m make plans for a trip. Um, by the way, I, I, um, I meant to write a letter. I saw Mary Jane in... Uh, I was, um, Suzanne and I were ministers, Eucharistic ministers on Saturday. She happened to be in the line. Um, I don't know that I should say, she looked like she'd been in an accident. So keep her in your prayers. I've, I've got a writer to find out what's going on and I didn't have time before class, so. Anyway, that's what we'll do. For sure we'll have a dinner, a potluck. So everybody can um, cook something and if, if it would help, um, I, I think what I'd like to do is open it to some people who have not been online 
who just were reluctant to come because they didn't like online. So I'd, um, I think what I'd like to do is ask Father if we can find a room just for the dinner so that the people who have not been with us since we went um, virtual will have a chance to join us. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Chester and um, Valerie. Valerie. Um, I've got to let her know. I, um, I don't want to end this year without having her meatballs once more. So Anyway, those are our plans. So, and any, if anything, any you guys want to add anything or do anything, just let me know. Or, you know, we're glad. This is sort of amazing. I can't imagine what I'm going to do on Monday nights after the next several months. I, I don't know what to do with myself. Um, I, I'm going to bond in part of July, a lot of it, and maybe again in October. Okay. But aside from that, I'll be here when I can. Okay. Um, we're going to take some breaks, Sue, and, and it, if, it may just work out that we'll take a couple weeks break in summer just to take a summer break. So, you know, nothing's set in stone right now. Um, we'll, we'll see. Well, we... mine are travel related, so nothing's set in stone except for July. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, okay, let's, I think that's it. Let's, let's start. Let's finish Robinson, Isaac, and Archibald. I read the end of the poem before class tonight. I, I haven't read this poem in 20 years and have been enjoying it very much. Um, up to this point, one way of describing the poem is that it's a little bit like a um, like a a young man's epic quest. Um, it's not a short lyric, it's a longer one. It's a narrative lyric. So it's longer than the poems we've been reading. But it's something of a, a quest. The, the young boy is 12. He's recalling this day when he took a walk with Isaac to Archibald's place and described all these things. Um, I think we're going to come to the climax of it in a, in in the beginning of this last section, and it picks up what I think was the beginning of that climax in the last section, and I'll go over it in just a second. But he's a young boy, 12, who's, who's aware of things that he can't quite put into words. Um, it's, it's like the woman who writes Supernatural Love when she's looking at herself as a four-year-old girl. He's looking back at these two men for whom he had this deep, deep fondness and there's an irony to the poem. He didn't see things then, um, and he gives us some sense of that in the way that he writes the poem now. Okay, And I don't want to give away what that is because I'd like to just read the poem and then ask you your response to it. Okay, So let me pick up where we were. Remember when we last, last left off last time, the young boy was fondly thinking about the two men, meditating on them, and he was calling to mind Homer and Troy and the battle. And by the way, I didn't pick this out remembering that, but I was enjoying it because I knew you guys have read it now, and so you're in a position to enjoy things about it that lots of readers wouldn't if they'd not read those works. But, but that Homeric world and the romance of this ancient heroic epic quest colors his mind as he thinks about these two old men. Okay. 
Um, one of the old men is saying, do not forget us as you get older. Remember this day. But I'm old and I must think of them. I'm in the shadow, but don't forget the light, my boy. The light. This is the end of the first part, or I mean the next to the last part. Remember that. Remember that I said it. And when the time that you think far away shall come for you to say it, say it, boy. Let there be no confusion or distrust in you, no snarling of a life half lived, nor any cursing over broken things that your complaint has been the ruin of. He's saying, be glad for life. Live it to the fullest. Um, live to see clearly and the light will come to you. And as you need it, but there, there, I'm going it again, as Isaac says, and I'll stop now before you go to sleep. Only be sure that you growl cautiously and always where the shadow may not reach you. Okay. Then he goes on, never shall I forget that, um, something in um, Archibald's voice. And then he has this on the next to the last page, page 8. Now and then my fancy caught a flying glimpse of a good life beyond. Something of ships and sunlight, streets and singing, Troy falling, and the ages coming back, and ages coming forward. Archibald and Isaac were good fellows in old clothes, and Agamemnon was a friend of mine. Ulysses coming home again to shoot with bows, and feathered arrows made another, and all was as it should be. I was young. So... He's read these books, they go back to a heroic time, lost, but he holds on to that heroic time as if it gives a romantic color to the way he looks at the two men, as if there's something noble and heroic about them. Those are the eyes through which he sees these two old men who are obviously approaching their end. Okay, This is the last section now, so this concludes the poem. So I lay dreaming of what things I would, calm and incorrigibly satisfied with apples and romance and ignorance and the still smoke from Archibald's clay pipe. There was a stillness over everything as if the spirit of heat had laid its hand upon the world and hushed it. And I felt within the mightiness of the white sun that smote the land around us and wrought out a fragrance from the trees, a vital warmth and fullness for the time that was to come, and a glory for the world beyond the forest. The present and the future and the past, Isaac and Archibald, the burning bush, the Trojans and the walls of Jericho were beautifully fused. You've got the beginning of things, we've, this is sort of strange, we've got the beginning of things in the epic tradition with the Iliad, and we've got the beginning of things with Christ calling um, um, Abraham out, and the forming of the tribes and the and the coming into Jericho, the promised land, which was the founding of Jerusalem. So he doesn't go into it, but those are the two illusions fused. It's the beginning of things. One in the natural order, one in the supernatural. But both, it's like they're enclosed in a, or surrounded by a halo. Um, the burning bush, the Trojans, and the walls of Jericho were beautifully fused. And all went well till Archibald began to fret for Isaac and said it was a master day for sunstroke. That was enough to make a mummy smile, I thought, and I remained hilarious. In face of all precedence and respect, Isaac, who had come to us unheard, 
found he had no tobacco, looked at me peculiarly, and asked of Archibald, what ailed the boy to make him so cheer up so? From that he told us what a blessed world the Lord had given us. But, Archibald, he added, with a sweet severity that made me think of peach skins and goose flesh, I'm half afraid you cut those oats of yours a day or two before they were well set. You can hear these two old men fussing at each other in the way they would getting older. They were set well enough, said Archibald, and I remarked the process of his nose before the words came out. But never mind, your neighbor's oats. You stay here in the shade and rest yourself while I go <clears throat> find the cards. We'll have a little game of seven up and let the boy keep count. We'll have the game assuredly, said Isaac, and I think that I'll have a drop of cider too also. They marched away together towards the house and left me to my childish ruminations upon the ways of men. I followed them down cellar with my fancy and then left them for a fair vision of all things at once that was anon to be destroyed again by the sound of voices and of heavy feet. One of the sounds of life that I remember, though I forget so many that rang first as if they were thrown down to me from Sinai. So I remember even to this day just how they sounded, how they placed themselves, how the game went on while I made marks and crossed them out, and meanwhile made some Trojans. Likewise I made Ulysses, after Isaac, and a little after Flaxman. Archibald was injured when he found himself left out. But he had no heroics, and I said so. I told him that his white beard was too long and too straight down to be like things in Homer. Quite so, said Isaac. Lo, said Archibald, and he threw down a deuce with a deep grin that showed his yellow teeth and made me happy. So they played on till a bell rang from the door, and Archibald said, Supper. After that, the old men smoked while I sat watching them and wondered with all comfort what might come to me and what might never come to me. And when the time came for the long walk home with Isaac in the twilight, I could see the forest and the sunset and the skyline, no matter where it was that I was looking, the flame beyond the boundary, the music, the foam, and the white ships, and two old men were things that would not leave me. And that night there came to me a dream, a shining one, with two old angels in it. They had wings, and they were sitting where a silver light suffused them face to face. The wings of one began to palpitate as I approached, but I was yet unseen when a dry voice cried thinly with unpatronizing triumph, I've got you, Isaac, high, low, Jack, and the game. Isaac and Archibald have gone their way to the silence of the loved and well-forgotten. I knew them, and I may have laughed at them, but there's a laughing that has an honor in it, and I have no regret for light words now. Rather, I think sometimes they have made their sport of me, but they would not do that. They were too old for that. They were old men, and I may laugh at them, because I knew them. Okay, any comments or thoughts about the poem? Doug, what? Go what? I enjoy it. I like old people, older than we are. 
God, that's old. Yeah, that is old. <laughs> I just enjoyed the 12-year-old's experience of the old man. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody? Sort of wonderful to imagine how young... I mean, we just had four of our grandchildren here, and I... I mean, we had them now for 12 years, and I told my son at one point when we had them a lot when they were really young, we were raising their children for them. So we used to see them a lot. We don't see them as that. But I wonder sometimes how, you know, a young 10, 12-year-old look at his grandparents. It's just got to be of another world. Fred, did you have something? Um, I, I just thought I had, going through the, the poem, it kind of reminded me of a movie I saw, uh, Secondhand Lions. Did you did you did you ever see that movie? No. Should and we see it? That, it's got Robert Duvall and Michael Caine, and I think it's Haley Osmond was was Walter. What's the name but again? It's, it was, it's kind of a story about a boy that was abandoned by his mother, basically with his two old uncles, and they're curmudgeons of a sort in in their own respective ways. And at first, you know the last thing in the world these two old guys want is for this young boy to, to be around them, you know, getting, getting in their way. But ultimately what happens is, you know, they, they kind of take him under their wing and he goes from a state of really not knowing what he's going to do or where he's going to go or what he's going to do with his life. He learns from these two old uncles. And they're and they're quite. It turns out that they're quite characters in their own right, as they tell him stories of their life. And in the end, you know, he winds up being much the better for having had the experience. Yeah. And actually becomes uh, quite a quite a young man, very successful. And uh, at the end, these 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 two old uncles, you know, being being real characters. They wind up, you know, flying a, a plane that they built through a barn that ultimately, you know, brings them to the end. And he's reflecting back on his life with them as as he grew up and what kind of an impact they had on it. And so I, I guess the poem just kind of reminds, and I've always loved that story, and it just kind of reminds me of that. Yeah. Called Secondhand Lion. What's the name of it again? Secondhand Lion? Secondhand Lions. Secondhand Lions. Secondhand Lions. Okay. Yeah, it's a really good movie. It's a wonderful movie. Debbie, you've been smiling the whole time. I mean, you got a response, so go ahead. Oh, no, I absolutely agree with Fred. That is, it's a wonderful movie. And, and that poem, when he mentioned it, I thought, ah, you're absolutely right. It's, it's a great, great movie. It's a great story about oh, um, coming of age of a young man and, um, and how, um, you know, two generations above him have influenced his life. It's just, it's a one, you need to see it. It's a wonderful movie. Will, Will now, yeah, I've not heard of it, so. Yeah. It's, wonder, it's wonderful. It really is wonderful. Thank you, Fred, for reminding me. I need to go watch that again. <laughs> I've forgotten all about it as well. Until me too. <laughs> Yeah, so we all should get together and watch it again. Yeah. <laughs> that was good. Oh, great, great movie. I love when they fly through the dang barn. Oh, I know. <laughs> well, and, and the boat that he bought for the pie. Yeah. 
it's a great movie. You're, you'll really love it. Yeah, we'll we'll get it for sure. Especially if you like this poem. Yeah, I love this poem. I love the poem a lot. Yeah, I haven't read it in 20 years, but I thought it was appropriate because most of us are getting on. Um, <laughs> no, we're not. Except for Tracy and Mark, the rest of us are. Um, okay, let's. Any other comments on the poem? It's a touching, touching poem, touching poem. Part of the beauty of it is that he's he's telling the story with us, with a sense of um, romance suffusing everything, coloring it. Um, but you're aware, too, that all of this is taking place while the two men are dying, and they're gone. It's a, it's a wonderful af affirmation of memoria, of memory, of the importance of memory in our lives, that we can hold on to these things in the past. So, okay. Um, last week we spent... Um, um, a, a good amount of time talking about differences between the Catholic and Protestant faith. And I'm not sure that there's um, reason to go back to that. One of the reasons that came to me is because it's we're getting to the end of things and I think it's important to recognize differences because um, they're subtle but real. Um, um, I think that I think that the fellowship is deeply Catholic and the and it's in the depth with which it deals with good and evil, holiness, spiritual good, spiritual evil. And the way it is um, um, so receptive to the concrete realities, there's nothing in the way. Um, Tolkien is a man so fully alive um, to the concrete realities of things in, in, in their various aspects. And he just he, he brings a rich world into view for us to experience its richness. Um, we talked a little bit about that. We talked about Gollum. I want to go back to Gollum just for a minute. Um, um, I, I, I thought Sue's way of describing him was right on. I'm not sure that everybody agreed with that, but I certainly do. Um, it seems to me Gollum is an image of what happens to a person. It, it's an image. It's a it's an image of grotesque comedy, an infernal comedy, like Dante's in The Inferno. It's an image of what happens to man in giving into evil. Um, the, the ring, the ring I, be, I believe, is um, an image of the autonomy that man longs to so that he can do whatever he wants. And at the core of that it is a desire for, for which he does not have enough knowledge, that there is an inclination in the human soul to evil. Um, um, the, the Protestant will say we're fallen, in essence, that the consequences of the fall were complete. The Catholic says no, we're wounded. Um, however you look at that concupiscence, if anybody looked at it squarely, is overwhelming. I'm trusting everybody knows that, that when anybody tries to deal with these sins, however competent he is, he finds he can't do it. We, we, otherwise, why, why did Christ come? Why did we go to church? So that ring is an image of the autonomy that man longs for. It's almost like trying to be like God, except it doesn't take a sufficient account of evil. Because once a man gives himself to that, he, 
he gives into a power that will overmaster him. There's almost nobody, ex except for a character that um, Jackson didn't bring into the movie, there's nobody who doesn't come under, under the influence of that ring and who isn't frightened by it, Aragon, even Ga or, uh, Gandalf. So one of the things that comes into focus in the two towers is what I call the pathos of Gollum. It's this struggle of um, um, wanting the ring and being willing to do anything um, and um, even be willing to seem to go along with something for the sake of that end. So even though he agrees to, um, to show Frodo and Sam the way to Mordor, we know that he's doing it for himself. And we, in, in Return of the King, we'll see eventually what he's planning. Um, but I, um, I, I don't want to deal with this question right now. I want to come to it. It seems to me one of the things that Tolkien makes possible through Gollum and that ring is, he, um, and very often good poets do this, or good writers, Sometimes good writers will give us something in the story that becomes an exegetical tool, a, a way of interpreting. It'll teach us how to read something. And one of the things we can do with that Gollum ring and the Gollum story is learn how to read everybody else. Um, I mean, one of the questions we can ask ourselves is, how present in Go is Gollum in any character in that book? Even though he doesn't show himself visibly in... Theoden or Aragon or Baromir or any of the characters, um, it, it's hard to watch the movie with Gollum in it and not ask, where is he? Um, how much do we see of him in any of their own struggles? So I think Gollum is an image of that inclination in a fallen human being to sin and the temptations he faces in giving into it. Um, I don't think it's just an addiction. Um, I mean, that's the way the secular world would look at any any excesses, alcohol, drugs, sex, pornography, whatever you know, whatever you want to look at. Um, the, the the movie makes that evident. Frodo is a good man. He does everything in his power to not let that ring get a hold of him. And at the very end, you know that he will not let go of it. When they finally get to the volcano. Um, to the end of their quest, he will not give it up. It's only because Gollum comes and chews off his finger that he that he loses it, and it's it's at the cost of a finger. Tolkien's made it clear that the the um, if anybody thinks he has control of sin, he's he's playing with things. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't need God. Um, and in this instance, we wouldn't. <laughs> Um, we wouldn't have the end of the story. It's only by a stroke of fortune or Gollum's persistence that he comes there that um, what happens does happen. So he's a major figure for the story. What I wanted to do tonight is go back to um, the two towers um, to see if we couldn't take a little bit of time to flesh it out because we, we really didn't spend much time talking about it. So. I want to turn this over to you in a second, but let me offer a couple of thoughts on the two, the two towers. By the way, does anybody have any thoughts about what the two towers are? What the title stands for? Mark, go ahead. No, well, I mean, my understanding is it's, the, it's Saruman's tower and Sauron's tower. It's the Great Eye and it's the Isengard. Yeah. Those, those are the, and they're kind of between everything, so everything between them. Yeah. 
Um, what does it say, Mark, for you that the book is has that title? That the, the focus in the title is those two powers, those two towers, when a lot is going on in the story. It's it's not what I I guess it's not what I would expect, and what I mean by that is you would think that if that's the title and that's what you want people to focus on are those two towers, that would be the main points of the book. And I think that it's not necessarily those two things, but things that surround that that make up the meat of that story. Um, but it's about the. Uh, relationship between those two evil, you know, the, the representation of the evil of what those are, right? Sauron on one side and Saruman on the other. Um, but it's just odd that they call it the two towers, um, but Sauron's tower is never really addressed ever in the books. Um, just as far as just what it is, but there's never, not like Saruman's, which is a I don't know, some sort of wizard's castle thing or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but just, uh, but that, that's that's my take on what it was. Yeah. Sue, did you have a thought? Yeah, I, I did, and it kind of plays off of what Mark said. To me, all right, I'll get them mixed up with Saruman, the, the worst one, the evil. There's a pure evil tower. That is pure evil. But the other one, Saruman, I think, is the one that creates the army and the orcs and the to support that evil because he's been pulled into it and so that's the distinction that i saw that 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 sometimes man can become the vehicle through which evil can thrive and grow That's as much as I have. Mm -hmm. So to me, it was the two sides. It was the pure evil, sort of not man evil, evil in its rawest, most awful form, and then how man contributes to that to support evil. Because he was evidently good. I mean, that was yep. from the first book, yep. but he evidently yep. was good. Yep. Baldorf, Gandorf. Gandorf? Thought he was going to have, yeah, Gandalf thought he was going to help, went to him and discovered he wasn't. Right. And he'd been corrupted. So, you know, it's it's sort of mankind to me where you've got two sides of that, the, the corruptible, and it's easy to fall into that and fall under the power of the evil. Yep. Anyway, that, yep. that was yep. the most thought I had. Yep. Anybody else? Let me try to give you an overall summary, if I can, of the action. This is going to be off the top of my head, so bear with me for a second. Um, you know how important that word is for me because it's, it's, the, it's a word that gets us to the whole of things, not just parts. And you, you know that my belief is that without that whole, all of us are susceptible to misreadings because we don't see things in terms of a whole. We see things in terms of a part. So, um, if I were to describe the action of, and I'm glad for anybody to jump in here for corrections or additions. Um, if I were to describe the action of the two towers, it would be something like this. In the fellowship, um, the action 
um, um, moves from the Shire um, out into the world um, temporarily or in a, in a provisional not yet way. Um, they set off from the Shire and um, because Frodo is wounded they end up in um, what's the Rivendell. Rivendell where he's healed remember so in the first book um, the adventure consists largely of a kind of romance with some sense of threats from the outer world but we're leaving an, an Arcadian pastoral world the Hobbit world the Shire and entering into a darker world in the two towers we enter that world completely and it seems to me that it um, that the, the, the terms of it are the two towers Saruman's tower and um, um, Saruman's tower and I think they um, I thought Sue's description of this, um, was really good and Mark's you know that everything goes on between them or within within the reach of their powers but if you look at what happens in Two Towers, it in, uh, we move out of the Shire in, into the world that I would call the epic world of the city. Um, and once we're there, what we, what we experience are these rivalries between kings and these evil sources. Um, Theoden is, has been corrupted by Wormtongue. Um, he's a terrible, terribly um, ineffective ruler. He's, he's under the thumb of this ugly figure. Um, and what happens is pretty much um, as Sue just described it. Um, he's a, a shade of what he once was. Um, and his kingdom is showing the effects of it. Um, Denethor um, is um, a man very capable, extremely capable and strong-willed. Um, um, but when we experience him, we, it's hard to, it's hard to, or it's hard, I think, to watch him without seeing the harm he does with his sons because he's so given to his vanity. Um, he doesn't see it, but he's working through Boromir and his, his oldest son is an extension of his pride. The reason he preems him so much is because he sees in him what he would like to be as a father. So in these two, in these in Rohan and Gondor, in the in the political centers of the of the of this world, we enter, we enter a world much like Dante's um, Florence. It's a world driven by pride and envy. It's been corrupted. Um, both rulers are are um, lacking in in their capacity to rule, and both of them have effects on their citizens and their families that are crippling um, and um, while the focus is on the political realm now in two towers we know that at the same time Frodo and Sam are heading towards um, Mordor to destroy the ring um, we become aware so one of the things um, Gollum and and the ring make visible to us is how present it is in these political figures. We can see something of them through the ring and Gollum. And so while all these machinations, these betrayals and struggles to gain power are taking place, Frodo and Sam are on their way to try to destroy the ring. 
um, and and um, you know that Gollum is helping them, um, but eventually he's going to betray them. Um, what's the other thing? At the same time that these struggles are going on between these two centers, Gondor and Ro um, Rohan, um, two things are going on. One is that Arwen, um, who loves Aragon, um, has a vision, I think it's in the, in the middle one, has a vision in which she sees that she has a son and her father didn't tell her about it. She, she agreed to go to leave and give up her claim on Aragon, but halfway on her journey she turns around and goes back and confronts him with it. It's at that point that he, um, the king, the elfin king, will go tell Aragon. That doesn't happen until the return of the king. But something's happened in that elfin world. They're retreating, they're leaving the world, and at, at least in this one instance, Arwen, um, who, who has been willing to give her life up to see mortality as a gift that she would choose that rather than live forever, um, throws a whole different light on all the other struggles. And the other is that Pippin and uh, Mary, remember, are captured by the orcs, and they manage to get free in that battle, and um, they escape into the forest, and it's there that they meet the trees. And um, they try to do everything they can to get um, um, Treebeard to get involved in the war. He will have nothing to do with it. I love the everything he does is slow, and it, it's it's a wonderful irony in the book. They want to save lives, so they're getting urgent and hurried and pressing. And Treebeard's making it clear he's not going to move with them at all. That that's not his concern. Um, at one point, I think it's Mary who tricks him, Pippin tricks Treebeard. Treebeard manages to get him to turn around and go towards Isengard. And when they get there um, and see the, the wreckage that um, Saruman has caused, all the ants become um, outraged and, and attack Isengard and overthrow it. So you've got all these power struggles between these political centers and these two towers, but behind them is this subplot with Frodo and Sam going to destroy the ring, and this other subplot involving um, Pippin and Mary, and it's actually their actions that help destroy Isengard. So once again, it's, it's the seemingly small things that seem to be a part of a backstory, they're not in the foreground, that play a major role in overcoming evil in this book. So um, what I'd like to do for a minute um, before we go on to Return of the King is talk about that action, any aspect of it. One of, the, one of the major concerns for me is the fathers, the kings, because um, Tolkien doesn't have a very good view of fathers, of kings, what he's showing us in that, and if we can find the ring in either of them. Questions like that, but let me throw it to you, you guys. Um, questions that you have or um, things that stood out for you in, in the two towers. This is a setup for Return of the King, so it's really important to take some time. You know that, that um, well, there are going to be two major battles in Two Towers. Hell's Deep is going to be attacked and almost destroyed. Uh, they will survive the orc attack, and Gandalf will say, um, Saruman's going to want revenge, so they set off for Isengard. When they get to Isengard, they see that Isengard is, has been destroyed.
So with all this evil that's going on, there are all these forces answering it. So a lot is going on in this, in this middle book that's worth looking at. I, I had a question. Because when it came to the trees, I'm not as good at remembering their names. And so Say, when it came to what, Sue? Trees. When it came to the trees. The trees. I mean, I know, he was not interested, not interested, and he was tricked into looking, and then when he saw the trees had been destroyed. It seems to me that that brings in nature. And in a sense, we've talked about nature in many, many, many poems, and sort of the connection to God, and, and God creating nature, and God creating power in nature, and healing in nature, and so on. And I was just really interested in that. But suddenly it is a nature-related part of that story that ultimately brings down the orcs. And, I, you know, I, I thought about it. there's healing, there's safety, there's power, all of those things in the natural world, and we don't pay enough attention to it. Anyway, that's what it said to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good comment. One of the interesting things along that line when you said we don't pay attention to it, it seems to me one of the things that I, I, I think, I'm not sure, but my, my sense of, of what Tolkien's doing is, if you look at what Saruman is doing in Isengard, he's trying to create these things that can destroy the rule of men. And we know that at one point in that story, I can't remember who said it, but he said, the time of the orcs has come and the time of man is gone. So one way of looking at the action is that we're actually looking at the potential overthrow of human beings, the destruction of them, and the rule of these artificial creatures. It seems to me one of the ways of looking at, I think I made this point last time before, one of the ways of looking at what Saruman is doing at Isengard is that he's creating these machine-like characters. They really are machines. A thing without, a motion without thought, motion without thought is a machine. Those are mechanical creatures that, you know, resemble, but they can't think, they don't have freedom, they, they're just marching in this, in this machine-like way to, um, to destroy these cities. That he's got very much on his mind the, the modern attempt to control nature, to um, arbitrarily use a power to get dominance over something. And, and it's interesting that um, the men have to defend Hell's Deep and the elves come to their aid. But it's the trees, it's nature that reasserts itself in, um, in Isengard um, to overthrow the source of that. In some ways that's almost more important than Isengard because it destroys, I mean, uh, than Hell's Deep, victory to Hell's Deep, because it's destroying the source of all of these things. So, I... Well, and I thought also about AI, artificial intelligence, along with <laughs> yeah. <the> Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yes, yes, amen to that. Um, by the way, I want to go back to this. I, I, I know Mark had lots of some questions about this, but um, we saw Chester at, at Mass on Saturday, and he was, or no, no, um, Monday morning. Was it this, or Friday morning, Friday, Friday morning. And he was, he said, he, I think he checks in online every once in a while just to keep up and 
was reading the trilogy and he was expressing his frustration because he said he was aware of how much the movie left out and he said one of the things they left out are all these poems, all these songs that continuously come up in the writing that don't get into the movie. And I mean it does a number of times but not nearly as much apparently as it does in the book. But it, I, I so enjoy the way Treebeard slips into poetry at times. Um, it, it's hard to be it's hard to be joyful without getting close to poetry. It has to have a beauty, you know, that... Um, so, I, I was... It's hard not to feel that Tolkien sees that nature is somehow alive, that it's not just this inert thing to be dominated or controlled for whatever purposes people have. Um, and the other thing that I just loved about it was his saying, he's not going to be rushed, if something's worth saying, it's worth saying slowly. <laughs> you know, so when you were saying, I can't remember your words, Sue, but when you said, you know, learning to get along with nature or something, or paying more attention to it, it seems to me if we if we did pay attention to it, we we would give up a measure of control. We'd stop trying to control things so much to have our way. And if we worked more in tune with nature, we would be happier. Remember, this is one of the great themes of Homer in the Odyssey. The Phaeacians had this masterful control of everything, the sea, and until the sea dumped a mountain on the ship. And um, that's been an ancient theme for us, an old theme that we don't work very much with. We don't work very well with nature. We want things the way we want them now, and we try to force things instead of patiently. <laughs> I'm reminded of Barbara's friend, and you know. Just, just so you know the irony, I, I, I played basketball when I was in high school and, and was planning to play it in high school or college. And in my summer home from my first year of college, I, I was on a fast break and made a pivot and blew my left knee out. And um, anyway, I, I, I had it repaired and I, I took up tennis afterwards because it didn't, you know, you're not bumping bodies. And um, but. I went into the Marines and injured it again, and I injured that knee probably every year after that until I had it operated on. That was a lot of injuries. And um, once um, a, a doctor put a cast on me, that cast was on me for a week and then I cut it off. I would not have that, <laughs> I would not have that cast. <laughs> so um, just know that, Barbara, I'm enjoying your friend and, and the irony of it. and. Um, you know, how sometimes we just do not work with what nature's given us to work with. Um, You're the person, the perfect person to tell that story to, huh? About Melanie, because she's so determined not to stay down. <laughs> I can't believe you took your cast off. Oh, believe no. it. Believe, I mean, if, well, if, if you knew me at all, you wouldn't have any doubts, Barbara. Well, I don't know. A grandson and and he doesn't speak yet but he knows this that's the sign for patience oh, oh wow and when you do that to him across a table or something he does respond to it not for very long but he responds to it yeah. so i'll do that for both melanie and Bob. okay do that do that again sue so i know it <laughs> don't would you not do that <laughs> Okay, got it. <laughs> it's not going to work. Here, I was, I was. Father Flynn and I were talking a couple of weeks ago, and he was, he was describing, just, just he was, he was describing. I had nothing good to say about his comment, by the way, just so you know, because he's going. 
Um, you know, one of the things you can do to improve yourself is try to get better than somebody loving somebody or doing something, you know, and he's saying, one of the ways to get rid of the sins is to do this and compete. I was picturing the two disciples who said, can we sit next, or are we going to be able to, or the mother of the two disciples, said, are we going to sit next to God? That was my response to Father. And then he laughed and said, yeah, um, the, one thing they, the one thing they didn't laugh at is, is um, what would happen if they started competing on being obedient? Who could be the most obedient? <laughs> anyway, we'll see, how, we'll see how that young guy does as he ages, Sue. <laughs> anyway, any, any other comments on what's going on in the... Um, I'd really like to spend some time talking about the two fathers, but good. Barbara, did you have something? Was your light on? No, it's just um, the people who um, are in charge of these towers and mechanizing people, and they have completely lost appreciation for nature and beauty. Yeah. Because there's nothing in those towers that look beautiful to me. Yeah. And they're ravaging nature. I mean, they're just, their whole purpose in life is destruction. It's just, um, it's menacing. I mean, you know, it's, it's it. We think of people as being, I, I believe people are inherently good. I mean, we're fallen, but if you grow up in a system in which you don't make place for our, our fall and you think you can become good, look at, look at um, the North Korean armies or some of the armies under dictators. It's hard to imagine those armies, they're men. It's hard to imagine those men not functioning like machines. There's, you know, there's a, a poem by a, by a modern, I can't remember, Czechoslovakian, where he describes a German soldier killing somebody, having no thought about it. Um, um, several years ago, I gave a talk at, at St. Francis on the difference between Catholicism and Islam. And I ended the, the, the talk with that quote, you guys should know it, from the Aeneid, when Aeneas fight, fights Lausus. Remember, he's the young son. Mezentius is the cruel ruler who, to punish people, ties them together and lets them rot. And um, they go to war, and Aeneas has to fight Lausus, this boy. He doesn't want to do it, but he has to and kills him. When he kills him, he says to the soldiers around, pick up his body and honor him. I mean, it's hard, it was hard for me to read that scene the first time I read it without get tearing up. You know, you're in a war in which everybody's killing everybody else, and Aeneas has, he has to fight to stop this evil, um, but he doesn't bring to it this callous indifference of human life. And we know that there are some people who go to war who, who, who become really callous, who have no thoughts about killing another human being. It's a it's a difficult predicament war. I mean, it it's it it's it can have such a strange effect on men um, and women. Yeah, Barbara, I, I agree with your description. It's um, anybody can can um, anybody have a response to my question about the fathers um, or kings as rulers. Can we find Gollum in Theoden or Denethor? Is Gollum... We've got an image of the, the Gollum plot. We've got a visual image of Gollum in the ring. It's, it becomes a way of looking, measuring, 
seeing what's going on in people. Can we see Gollum in either Theoden or Denethor? Let me give a better, let me try to be more concrete. In the, you, you know that the two towers ends with um, Gollum and Frodo and, and Sam setting off. I, I think it's masterful. I thought what Jackson did here was masterful. And um, we leave Sam and Frodo for a second and the focus is on Gollum and we watch him on two sides of a tree with his head coming out of one side and then coming out of another and you say, should I kill him, should I not? And he wants precious more than anything. Um, and there's, we get a sense sometimes in his gestures that he feels helpless to do anything about it. There's something helpless in him. At the same time, we see this other side of him that is, that is pure evil, absolute evil. And the two of them go back and forth. And um, it ends with Gollum saying, she will do it. Let her do it. And we're left with this mystery of what he's talking about and what will she do. And we know it's the spider who's going to, you know, he's going to lead Frodo to in the hopes that Frodo and Sam would be killed. The Return of the King opens with Smade, um, with Gollum, what's his name, Smade, 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 God. Um, Smagel and his cousin in the boat fishing and his cousin will bring up the ring and um, Smegel will kill him. So we go from Gollum and all that we've seen from him when he catches up with Frodo and Sam to the backstory. And we learned that the backstory is that, he, that they were fishing to, one day. They were just doing what ordinary people do. Um, but his cousin comes up with the ring and he wants it so much that he kills him. And from that point forward, age has passed. And over that period, Gollum becomes more and more corrupt. It's like watching a figure in hell infinitely decay. Um, can we find that figure in any of the other characters? Can we find it in, let's, in, the, two, in the two rulers, in Theoden and Denethor? Tracy, go ahead. Um, after Theoden gets released from Wormtongue, uh, he's um, seems to me to be hopeless as a ruler. Like, yeah, he has no hope, and so his his people have no hope. And um, at some point, he says, uh, "What can we do in the face of so much evil?" And Aragon talks him into face, you know, going out facing. Right. And so I would say that, and in the end, he's he he goes out to war knowing that they're going to lose. And so I would say that those were kind of two sides of him, that hopelessness. And then um, Denethor, um, his relationship, I would say, with his two sons that you have, you know, that he, um, I mean, he. He um, ends up, bur you know, almost burning the younger one alive, <laughs> you know, um, and tells him that he wishes that he, the younger one had died in, in the place of the older one. So just that relationship between 
of his love for his two sons being that double-sided thing that Gollum has. Yeah. Those would be the two things that come to mind. Let me, I, I meant to say this and I, a lot when I was going back to that tree episode at the end of um, The Two Towers. And you, know, you know that as we go along, um, there will be moments of temptation. Um, Gollum's going to trick Frodo into believing Sam will turn on him and Frodo will dismiss him, tell him he's got to go on alone. There are moments in there when Sam will go at him, when Sam overhears him saying that he's going to kill the hobbits, he gets so angry he's ready to kill him. And there are those there's scenes like that where Sam will go at Gollum, and Gollum will turn like he's been unfairly treated. You know, I mean, I was thinking about children a lot, but as adults, I mean, let me let, let me go to children and hold off on. But as children, you know, there are times when because children are much more helpless and at, at the mercy of adults, that something can be said to a child and he'll feel wounded, unjustly treated, and will play at being a victim and turn the blame back on somebody else. It can be a sibling, it can be his parents. So in Gollum, it seems to me, we go to the root of this question of pride and wanting something and becoming desperate enough that you'll use anything when it, when it means making somebody else an object, making somebody else less than they are, so that you can have your way. So, um, do we find Gollum in the two rulers? Can we identify scenes where we actually, Gollum becomes a way of interpreting, a way of helping us to see what's going on in these rulers and what they're doing? Mark, go ahead. Stop me if I start going the wrong direction here, because your question to me is not whether I see Gollum, but the ring is about power and control. That's, a, that's what it's about. And all of the characters, Gollum, Frodo, Elrond, I mean, all of them, even the kings, it's what do they do with power and how I think it affects them. Some it drives mad, some handle it better than others, um, some get controlled by it, then freed. Then, so, so to me, that's the question I want to answer when you ask that, and I don't know if I'm off base. Ask the question. I mean, I didn't hear a question. I, I, I agree with everything you said. The, the question is, it's not do I see Gollum, it's what do these, how do these men react to power? Yeah. That to me is the question. Yeah, okay. And I don't know if I'm off base. No, no, I don't think you are. I thought your description was right on. Um, the, the, the value of, of Gollum for me, Mark, is that he gives us an image, a visible image of something that's harder to see because it's inward. The, I mean, one of the things we can say in terms of power, and I'm glad you emphasized it, is it seems to me what... what well, and let me hear what you guys agree or disagree. It seems to me that one of the things that Tolkien's doing is showing that um, the more power that a man has, the more likely he is to be corrupted. So when he shows the two rulers, their corruption is greater in the sense that its influence covers a, a greater space. When Frodo picks up the ring, this is really important, I think. He doesn't do it 
because he wants power. Everybody in the fellowship, when they have that council, wants that ring for wrong reasons. Frodo steps forward like Moses, not because he wants it, because nobody else is going about it the right way. When Boromir goes after him, what we're watching in, as I read him, what we're watching in Boromir is an image of his father. He believes that with that power, he can save Gondor. And and Tolkien's very clear in what happens. I mean, Bor- I, I, the reason I think that's the climax of that first episode is because it ends with Boromir dying, he's a heroic man, and asking for forgiveness. It's exactly the same words that Frodo's going to speak to Sam when they get to Mount Doom, when he realizes that um, Gollum tricked him, and he sent Sam away. His words were, forgive me, Sam, you know, because he's learned. Um, So, um, some of the men openly go after it. It seems to me Denethor, without a question, it's what drives him. Um, It's why he's so proud of Boromir and why he's so ready to shame Faramir. It's it's just an awful thing because Boromir would have brought him the ring and Faramir doesn't. And he he sees that as a betrayal. He's so so hungry for power. So I think what he shows us is that politically the more inclined a man is to have power, the more he's tempted by the ring. Aragon did not want that. He did not want to be king. He, for ages, he did everything again to avoid it, like Frodo. So we've got a couple of men who are doing everything they can to resist the power, to not step into it. It's interesting. To, I mean, one of the ways of looking at the story is that you can see it as, as a coming of age. That's a, a, it's too much of a cliche, but coming of age of Aragon. He slowly grows into the position that is rightfully his, so that when he does take it, he rules as a good king should. He's the exception to the rule of rulers in this story. Um, What he does is so good towards the end as a ruler, when all the other rulers fail in some ways. Um, Tracy, let me just comment on yours because it's interesting you'd say that. I I look at um, Theoden as, as Mark used the phrase that, I can't remember how he said it, but some give in and then some recover. I thought one of the remarkable things about that middle section was Theoden's recovery. You know, he he's he is a absolutely corrupted man, and I can't a very corrupted man. And Gandalf helps bring him out. There are foolish things he does afterwards, and you, I think you were spot on in, in, in doing them. But I think there's a goodness in him. Um, he's he's he still carries the effects of you know that decay or decline that he went in, however we're to call it. But there there is a goodness in him that um, that I think we're we're meant to admire. It, it's divided, but he's not, in, at least in my estimation, he's not like um, Denethor. Denethor has, the, one of the differences between the two men, at least Theoden had some sense of a change, that he lost something and was recovered. It's like a sinner in a conversion. Deneth, um, Denethor has no sense that I can remember. He's just so convinced um, all along you know, of what he's doing, and if he only had the ring, he, he would be able to accomplish all the good that he wants. Um, it's not an accident to me that he, 
that he has the end that he does. He throws himself on the fire, and then when he gets burned, doesn't he go off and throw himself off the... You know, he's just... Um, he's gone mad. Um, Theoden has a good ending. You know, he and his, um, his niece, is it his niece, have that touching ending when he does die. I think Tolkien's really clear of the dangers politically for men who want to succeed um, and who are tempted by power, the power that gives them the means of being successful at whatever they do. Anybody else on Gollum and the two rulers? Or fathers? Fathers don't come out looking very good in this story. Here, one more thing before we turn from this. I've got two images, two things I want to leave you with, and I'll ask your response. One of them is, it was one of the most sickening moments of the story, and they stand off as counterparts. I think the climax of the fellowship is when Boromir dies. When he goes to his death, we're watching a, a man who was noble, who, who had every reason for seeking the ring, particularly given his upbringing, and tries to go at it and realizes he's done wrong. But he's brave enough to stand off against the orcs. He's a, he's a warrior. He's a fighter. And he dies a noble death. And his last words are, forgive me. You know, he, um, he wants Frodo's forgiveness. He asks um, Aragorn for forgiveness. Um, these are men who inherited a sense of a heroic past. Baramir grew up with these legends behind him. The counterpoise to that is Faramir when his father sends him back to that city when it's been overtaken by the orcs, knowing, Faramir goes into that knowing he will die. Remember when he passes through the city. The city's in mourning. They're throwing leaves out. Flowers. Flowers. In, it's a rite of passage. He's going to his death. And he was sent there by his father. To me, it's one of the most sickening, sickening scenes. It just it makes me angry to talk about it. And the scene we have while his son is going into battle, Denethor is stuffing food in his mouth. Tomato juice and stuff is streaming. He's feeding it. So here's, here's Gollum for me. Gollum's instinct is, it's mine. It's mine. It's mine. That impulse in every human being to say, it's mine. I want authority. I want power. It's mine. His son's going off to die. He shamed him to his death, and he's filling his mouth with food, with stuff dripping down his face. This is the image set against Faramir dying. Or, no, Faramir, when he's going off to the death. Of, so hold on to that image, okay? Two, I mean, the image of fathers and what they do with their children, sons. When Gandalf and Pippin come to um, the, what's the myth? Minas Tirith. Min, Minas, Tirith. Minas Tirith, yeah. Remember when they're repulsed by um, Thenador? That Gandalf says, get ready. And Thenador, he, he won't hear anybody. He's like a president who won't hear his advisors who in his pride, has got to make decisions by himself. When Gandalf and um, Pippin are coming out 
after being repulsed. Remember, there's that tree there, and it's withered. Pippin had seen it in his dream, and it came as a wither. That's what gave away um, the, uh, the impending attack by the orcs. Um, Gandalf says that, sees that, and, and goes there. These are his words to Pippin as they're walking away from the hall. Because Pippin doesn't know, the, the king says things are hopeless, or, or they're ready, he need, doesn't need to do anything. Gandalf is critical because he says, you've not made the preparations that you should have. You know, war's coming. This, these are Gandalf's words. I love them. These are in the story. They guard it because they have hope, a faint and fading hope that one day it will flower, that a king will come. By the way, I, I think the allusions here are to Christ, ultimately, the, the king, the return of the king. Everything behind this story indirectly hints at Christ. The return of the king that one day in power and glory and judgment he will come that a king will come and the city will be as it once was before it fell into decay the old wisdom born out of the west was forsaken here's the line i want to focus on kings made tombs more splendid than the houses of the living and counted the old names of their descent dearer than the names of their sons Childless lords sat in aged halls, musing on heraldry or in high, cold towers asking questions of the stars. And so the people of Gondor fell into ruin. One of the serious questions I have is this England, is this Tolkien indirectly or Blake or any of the poets that we've read who have lived while England declined? Let me read those lines again. The old wisdom born out of the West was forsaken. Kings made tombs more splendid than the houses of the living and counted the old names of their descent dearer than the names of their sons. What's the meaning of those lines in terms of the action of the story? What light does that throw on the rulers? Kings made tombs more splendid than the houses of the living and counted the old names of their descent dearer than the names of their sons. Pretty serious criticism of fathers, and it seems a mistake lots of fathers fall into. What's he saying? Bob, you're putting that statement about kings to fathers automatically? Well, I'm doing it here because it refers to Denethor, but indirectly it seems to me it also refers to Theoden. I mean, both both Gondor and um, Rohan. Rohan are in decay. Mm -hmm. um, there's a failure of their rulers um, to take care of their kingdoms, of their people as good rulers. We should read Beowulf before. <laughs> before we leave this class. But it's failure of rulers, and, 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 and they both have families, they both have people to take care of. In this instance, it, it refers specifically to Denethor, and we see what happens with Faramir and Boromir. I mean, it's a sad, it's a pretty serious criticism of a father and its effects on his sons. What's he saying? Can anybody just flush that out? Give me a paraphrase. 
The old wisdom born out of the West was forsaken. What was that old wisdom? What did people once know that the moder- this world has lost? We've been doing this now for ages because we started with the Iliad through Shakespeare, who keeps going back to the past, and now we're with Tolkien, who's looking back to a heroic... Remember all the images when, when... Remember when they came into that place where they saw the statues of the kings, and they're all crumbled, broken, and one of them has a crown of flowers on its head? And who is it that makes the comment that it's crowned again? They live with this sense of an old past. But, but here, Gandalf is saying, the old wisdom born out of the West was forsaken. What was that wisdom that was lost? One. Two, kings made tombs more splendid than the houses of the living and counted the old names of the descent dearer than the names of their son. What's wrong? What's Gandalf saying? Debbie, are you there? Nope. <laughs> Debbie Boyle, are you there? No. Fred, you got a thought on this? Well, what it what it says to me is, well, well, first of all, when when we when we look at the kings and the state that they're in, what's 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 interesting, and I think it's I think it's true whether you look at what's going on today or back in history, but the people of a kingdom typically reflect the character of their their king. Yep. And we we certainly see it in, in this story. And I think I think what it refers to is as as a king goes into a state of decline, there there tends to be a lot more focus on the past past glories uh, of, of, them, of themselves, of, of their um, predecessors, and less focus on the future. Or the and, present. And where their kingdom is going to be going after they're gone. So they're, they're more focused on, you know, where am I going to be buried and am I going to be honored versus... You know, recognizing that their son is the next generation of leadership, and and where is that leadership going to take my kingdom once I'm I'm gone? And I I think if you kind of look at the East versus the West, particularly in some of the ancient history, that that whole that whole fiefdom or dynasty of of those ancient Kingdoms. It was all based on your lineage, where you came from, yeah. and who they were. And you know, the whole the whole reason the West began was a handful of people left that. Boy, yeah, good for you. Uh, you know that characterization, and and went to the New World to create something entirely different. And anyway, when I read that. That that line or lines that's that's what comes to mind. Anybody Over. else? In, anybody else? Sue, did you have something? Uh, yeah, my thought was very much along the line of what Fred said, which I thought he said very well. Part of it is when you look toward the past for your glory. 
you abdicate your responsibility for the yeah. behavior. Yeah. And that's what I see, not just in fathers, but in mothers. Um, when we're parents, we have a responsibility for the future. We can live in glory, I suppose, in our past, in our ancestry, and look at our lineage and so on, and be part of daughters of whatever. But we need to have our focus on what we can contribute that is good to the future. And that means not just looking at what it what Gloria gives us, but what what from where we are we can pass forward. Anybody else? I'd like to throw in something here and try to pick up a number of threads that you guys... Fred, I know you'll appreciate this. Um, um, I know you, there's too much there's too much going on in my head right now. I don't think it's I don't think it's just for the future. Um, remember our call, one of the calls of poets, but certainly from Christ is, to not live in the past, to not live in the future, to live now. One of the things that happens when we live in the past or the future is that we avoid making sacrifices now. So one of the ways of escaping the self-sacrifice that Christ asks is by living in the past or a future, not yet. Now just, just to hold on to this for a second, um, I'm really appreciating what you said. Um, remember, I... Um, one of the good things that I think we took away from Faulkner in Go Down Moses is Sam's tutelage of Ike. That Sam was teaching Ike how to hunt, not the way the hunters did. He was teaching him to work with nature, to be one with nature. I mean, it so fits with what we're talking about here. So that his whole approach would be different. Remember, he hunts, he hunts old Ben again and again and can't get him. And, and finally he comes back one day and Sam says, um, the gun, the comp you know. So he goes out the next morning, he, he leaves the gun, he leaves the compass, he leaves the watch, he leaves all the things of technology, and he's got to learn with what nature gives him. And it's only when he does that that he comes face to face with Ben. And in that moment, he doesn't, he's not a hunter, the bear's not hunted, it's not a predator and a prey, it's a, it's a mutual beholding. It's like a moment in Eden where they recover this wonder. Because the, the tendency in the hunters, remember, is to kill, the, to kill the animal. So one of the great themes that we've had from the very beginning has been having to make decisions in the present moment with the future in mind, but it may, it may involve a self-sacrifice now. One of the dangers of living in the past in that glory is, is, is that it's a vainglory. You're not making the sacrifices. You're not taking responsibility. You're not suffering the pain of choices now. You're escaping them. You're avoiding them. To live in a dream world. Um, remember, when, um, when Aeneas set off, um, the beauty of the Aeneid is that Aeneas keeps trying to make a fountain. He's not avoiding something. He tries again and again and again and again. He never gets, he never, well, he doesn't get it right, you know, for eight years. And then finally, when he gets to um, Carthage, he takes a year with Dido. It's only because the gods come along that scare him. But at every moment, he's faced with 
an act of renunciation again and again and again and again. That's the beauty of the Aeneid and why in so many ways it goes past Homer in the Iliad and the Odyssey. Because he has to give himself up in order for, but it requires an act now. The call for Christianity is a, is a cross now. Not yesterday, not tomorrow, now. Whatever that choice involved. And we know from all of our literature that very often you make a decision thinking this is going to be it for you. And something happens. It's like God steps in. He intervenes. But those things are beyond us. The, the point is, we're called to bear the moment now, make whatever decision we have to for the good of this moment. We do it hoping that it will, you know, that it will um, protect the past. Um, that's what Aragorn does when he goes. Go say say it like. Can you hear Doc? That's what Aragorn does when he takes the path of the dead. He goes under the mountain, into the path of the dead, knowing what he wants. He wants the dead to fight for him, but nobody has ever come out of that path alive, and so he's putting himself on the line as a becoming king. Right. Um, he can't claim that. No, he does claim it. Except as king, because it's the only authority he has over them. It, it's what makes the agreement between them possible, because only the king of Gondor could do that. Um, anybody else? And anybody, I, I just love that scene, and it's, so, it's, it's a puzzling scene. I, I don't know of another writer who's done anything like that. He goes into the land of the dead where all these hellish infernal creatures are damned. They're there because of their betrayals. They all cowardly turned. It's a hellish condition. He goes into the land of the dead and offers them a way out. Anybody want to make a comment on that? Because it's only, it's only because of their help that they can come and rescue the city when it's about to be destroyed. It's only by drawing on the past. Here's the great epic thing that I've been pushing at you from the beginning. Every epic poet has carried the past forward and redeemed it as he went. That was his job. And I suggested that's the task for all of us. We have to carry the past forward, redeem it. We can't go back. We can't be arrested by it. We can't escape it in the future. It's what we do now. Anybody want to comment on that? Because I've never seen, I don't remember a work in literature in which anybody does any. But Tolkien's, Tolkien's doing a really risky thing. A king goes into the land of the hell, the, the damned, and gives them an opening to get out of it, to be released. That was a, to me, a remarkable scene. Anybody. Any comments on any of these? Bob, I never thought of a, I, I had never thought about that particular episode because I think you're alluding to resurrection or you know something like that or Christ bring sinners from hell. So I had never thought about it like that. So it's interesting. But what also strikes me is, I mean, I read these books forty years ago seen the movies and read them again and it has never occurred to me all the times that I've read it and I'm wondering in my head because you asked in your letter you know, is this a Catholic work and 
it is probably the most non-religious work that has religious aspects in it that I've ever come across. It's not in your face. It's not, dude, right. there's nothing religious about any of this. Right, but right. Every scene, every uh, you know, big moment or whatever has some sort of morality, ethics. Religious. Yeah, it's, but, For it's, sure. but it's not put in a religious way. For you know, sure. Not, I don't know how to say it. No, no, you said it beautifully. No, you said it right. So, but I never thought about it like that before. Wait, so am I to understand? You read that 40 years ago and you've been rereading it and suddenly something just struck you? Mark, you and I need to stay together a while longer. <laughs> God bless your soul. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> any other... Any, sorry, Mark. Bob, you've had enough pain in your life that I've been put up with. Oh, no, God. No, I, if, if, if you weren't in this class, a, a big hole would creep into... I no, I'm more glad, and you know that because I said it to you. I'm more glad that you're here than I can tell you, even though sometimes you drive me nuts. <laughs> Anybody, Tracy? What's where are you on all of these these things about the kings and fathers and the past and and this line? I'm haunted by this line. I'm not sure that kings made tombs more splendid than the houses of the living. The living are the people they're responsible for. Yeah. They make the past, the tomb, the dead who died in... Here. Okay, let me ask it more directly. The old wisdom born out of the West was forsaken. What was that wisdom that's been forsaken? I think I just named it. It's the willingness to sacrifice your life for another. It's... It's that what it's that that makes you brave, that makes the legend that get. Remember when Sam says, "Are they going to be writing stories about us one day?" Um, the kings who are living now don't have the courage to risk their lives. They're too caught up in their own pride, having what they want. That image of the king, you know, stuffing his face when he he sent his son to battle is. The old wisdom born out of the West was forsaken. There's this beautiful line, you'll come to it in, Ch in Chesterton, somewhere in the opening, where he says, um, God, how did they... It's, the altar wasn't holy. How do you put it? They didn't worship the altar because it was holy. They made it holy because they fought for it and it became holy in their fighting. In, in, in giving your life for something, that something takes on a holiness of its own. The more you relinquish your life, this is Christ. I mean, it goes to Mark's point. There's nothing, Tolkien does nothing almost explicitly religious, but there's not, there's not a line in this work that isn't religious. Christ said, unless you, you know, fall to the ground or, you know. So the whole work is, or, or this aspect of we're dealing with it right now, is one of the problems with these kings that they live in the glory of this past. It's particularly true of um, um, Denethor. You know, he, he's he, there's such a vain glory to him in power, and he's not given himself to what he should have here. The same thing for um, Theoden, and you can say the same thing for Boromir um, in some ways. 
And there are degrees of this. I mean, going back to what Mark said, there are degrees of these this lust for power that these people have. But one of the problems is living in the past, the kings made tombs more splendid. They made the accomplishments of the past greater when the whole question is, are you giving your life to what you're doing right now? That wisdom is forsaken, and, and the cities are in ruin. And, in, and one way of looking at this, it's no accident. The cities, the cities' ruins have as their correlation the evil. They're correlated. They're in proportion related to each other. To the degree that they're in ruins, the city grows, or the evil grows. Some power has to come forth to answer it to help bring these cities out of their decay to have a renewed life. The cost of that will be the near destruction of the cities. Hell's Gate is practically destroyed. Minas Tirith is practically destroyed. Or, um, so it's all about the coming of a king and these struggles but you know, between these Poles of power, Ro, um, Rohan and and um, Gondor, the evil that set it foot. And the, part of the beauty of it seems to me the two the um, the two towers is that while all these political struggles are going on, and we're watching political leaders and fathers struggling with these things, Frodo and Sam are doing what they can to take this ring to the mountain. So behind the scenes, these political scenes which sort of take, preoccupy, or capture our attention, is something else going on that doesn't involve heroic fighting, men killing each other, but it requires every, every bit as much courage. And while Frodo and Sam are doing this, Pippin and Mary are with Treebird. <laughs> when Treebird is... It, tree, tree beard is not interested in moving very, very quickly, and yet it's it's going to be what Frodo and Sam do and what Pippin and Mary do, inconspicuous, not calling attention, doing what they do, that's going to finally bring this battle to an end. Any, any. Last thoughts about any of this, the two, the two towers? I loved what you just said a minute ago, Mark, because I think it's true. There's nothing explicitly religious. It is absolutely religious to its core. The depth of evil, the depth, the depth of spiritual good. I, I mean, it's, it's, so, it's an amazing thing to watch Gandalf apparently go to his death with that Belrog, remember? And then when he when he returns, he's wider. He's more spiritually powerful. Through all the deaths that somebody undergoes, he gains in a step of holiness. is the is the only way that I can put it. This is not about political machinations. That's the focus of it. What's going on are these spiritual things and the the role that they play in the struggle between good and evil on this political level. Is that clear? And everything, everything in Two Towers is on a political level. I mean, that's where the focus is. The, it's the forefront.
but at the same time, these other things are going on that are very subtle, that, that have to do with spiritual good and evil. Um, and the outcome of the battle, the struggle, for, is going to depend on them. Gandalf's at the forefront of it all. He's there at Helm's Deep, he's there at Minas Theris. But Frodo and Sam, Gollum, and uh, Pippin and Mary are absolutely crucial right now to everything going on. And they have no armor, no swords. They're not hacking heads. There's a place for men to fight wars. And so clearly they have to be fought. Men, are gonna, men have to be willing to sacrifice their lives. At the same time, there's this other action going on. And it seems to me part of the tension in, in uh, the two towers is that tension between those, those different plots. Let me stop. Any comments or questions? Or It's very much an affirmation of the present moment. I love that line. Kings made tombs more splendid than their houses. That was the central theme of the Aeneid. It's been was central to all of Shakespeare's works, even King Lear. What we do in the present moment, um, do we see that something more is going on than meets the eye? Or do we live in our pride, God, thinking we see things when we don't? That's what Gandalf says when he tells... Sure. Can you hear Doc? <clears throat> Say it louder. So Frodo says he doesn't want to do this. He wishes the ring had never come to him. And Gandalf says, so do all who see times like this. But what's important is what we do with the times the that we're given. given. Yeah. Okay, if... Um, if that didn't lighten your burden for the next week, I don't know what will. <laughs> I hope you all go away cheerfully with great boulders on your shoulders tonight. <laughs> Remember, that's the first level of pride. Oh, Tracy just gave me... <laughs> sorry, Tracy, if I... I, I shouldn't... Because I don't know what burdens... I, I, in fact, I know you're all carrying burdens, but... Um, Tracy, I'm going to write you afterwards about my note. I, I want an answer from you, but um, anyway. Any last comments on, we'll do, we'll do uh, the Return of the King. We'll finish it next week because we should be able to do the Return. Now that we've got this behind us a little bit more thoroughly, we'll do the Return. Of, the action of the Return of the King is pretty simple. I think there's a real complexity in the two towers because we've got these two, you know, Rowan and Gond Gondor and everything that's going on between them, but... Um, anyway, any last comments? Um, after next week, we'll take a break for a week. We'll give you guys a, a startup on orthodoxy. I hope you enjoy it. It's a it's a lively book. It's it's not fiction. It's just a it's it's an amazing man um, using powers of reason, almost unlike any I've known, any I've met in my life. Bob, do you have, um, like, I started Chesterton just to keep, so I can keep up, but, and he mentions things like, and I'm not going to be able to say what it is, yeah. but like, it's like, um, uh, I guess, 
maybe they're not philosophies, but maybe like political um, movements, maybe. I wish I had it in front of me. I could look it up, but I don't know what they are. You know, he, he just throws them out there like we're supposed like we should know, and probably people at the time did, but I don't know what they are. So I'm going to have to look them up. So I'm wondering if you have one of your handy, <laughs> you know, cheat sheets. You think I'm going to spoil you guys any more than I already have? I am not giving you any notes on <laughs> Chesterton. How's that? Um, you know, you know, I'm going to send outlines. Um, Tracy, my my off the you know surface off the top of my head answer, and I'm saying this honestly, truly. My answer is forget all that stuff. Don't research. I'm saying this really seriously. Enjoy the argument. There's, I mean, the the major movements at his time would have been feminism, genetics, genetic engineering, um, the attempt to reduce the poor by controlling birth. Distributism. Um, yeah, that's a... Um, they were aware that um, the West, in, particularly in England and America, were capitalistic. He and, um, you know, the group of close friends started this movement called distributism. I don't even want to... To me, it, it's, it's, it's... I think it's based on Acts when the apostles distributed their goods but their, Chesterton was not a romantic. He would never have endorsed that as, as the basis of a political structure. He thought that capitalism um, was um, fouled, and so was socialism. And he hated socialism more than capitalism. I'll give, I, I think I've sent you guys a quote. I'll send it again. But those are the large concerns, but... Um, but Part of the beauty of orthodoxy, it seems to me, is that he's not taking on certain movements and devoting time to them. He's attempting to explain a philosophy that he's come to over the course of his life. So he just takes on different aspects of that philosophy. He'll touch on movements at the time, like genetics or, or evolution. Um, Everlasting Man, which is the book that converted C.S. Lewis, is his argument against evolution. I think it's amazing. I mean, I, I, I don't think anybody can look at evolution the, the same way the modern mind is if you read that book. But he's not, he's not attacking particular movements. He's not taking them on head on. He's, he'll touch on them insofar as they have to do with the shaping of his own mind, that he, that he realized there was something wrong with this, whatever that this was. And you you watch him clarifying his mind as he's responding to these things. Um, England is, is deeply Protestant at that point. Um, Chester's on his way to conversion. He's taking Dean Ing was one of his favorite targets because he was the uh, the uh, bishop of um, Canterbury, and he took these outrageous stands on Christianity, and Chesterton responded to them. But he's not taking. He's not devoting a chapter to any particular thing. He's, he's, he's taken a, an area of thought like fairyland or politics or the flags of the world and, you know, the comic name and t talking about the things that helped shape his mind because he saw that there was something wrong with him and making an argument to show what in his mind is a, is a, is a firmer ground, a sounder ground a healthier ground of reason.
and he does it with humor. I mean, he's just he, he's just you know he's got this wonderful sense of irony and the um, foolishness and so I would say don't un unless it's something just driving you nuts. Really enjoy the argument, enjoy the writing. He's a journalist. He's not a philosopher. He's he's writing as an ordinary human being to another ordinary human being. Be an ordinary human being. Sit in your book. I'm saying it truthfully. Tracy, you're more than capable. You are so much more than capable. He's writing to ordinary people. He's not taking up causes. That's not what he's doing. He's, he's trying to give a sketch of his philosophy of life. It's very general. So I'd say just take it at that level and enjoy it. But yes, he will send you notes. Just make sure before you ask your spouse to read it, that your spouse is respect, um, um, open, receptive, because otherwise you may find the book flying back at you. <laughs> she narrowly missed my head when she threw that book at me. Um, okay, next, uh, Mark, go ahead. I was just going to say, so you probably don't buy our hardback version. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> no, glad for you, Mark. And and thank God, thank thank God, her aim is decreased in age. So I wish I could say that's true, but it isn't. I'm sorry, Sue. What did you say? I just said Kindle versions don't hurt as much unless it comes on the computer. God. <laughs> So don't put any ideas in there. I'd hate to see a computer flying at my head. Um, okay, um, it's good to see you guys all again. You all have a good week and stay safe. And everybody's healthy, yeah, from the virus. Are you all doing, I mean, you all seem to have managed all of this really well. I'm glad to see that. Okay, you guys have a good week. Enjoy, enjoy um, Return of the King. If, if you haven't, we'll, we'll finish next week and, and then do Chesterton. Bye. 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 Boy, I don't know why that. I've tried fooling with this and I don't know what to do, but. Oh.